so one of the great joys that we get to hold as a church is that we get to call as one of our brothers, Tim Mackey, who started a little thing called the Bible Project and just so happens to get to teach the world in many ways uh, how to understand and pick apart the Bible. And so from time to time, Tim shows up and does a little something just for us as a family in picking apart a theme from Scripture. So let's together welcome Tim Mackey to teach us tonight. Right. Hey, everybody. How are you guys? Good. Good. Me too, I think. <clears throat> um, I've been working by myself in a room all day, so this is a real shift from what I, uh, where I was a couple hours ago. Um, it was a great day. Um, thank you for asking. But um, uh, I, I think this is going to be um, a special evening too. Um, and I'm not quite sure what's in store. I mean, I have some things I'm going to say. I, plan, I did plan that. Um, but I'm not quite sure where this train is going to end tonight, and I think that's a good thing. Um, I have been asked, invited to uh, weave together two themes um, that have to do one with the Bible and one with prayer tonight. And when it comes to the Bible... I feel very comfortable. Um, I'm uh, a Bible nerd by profession, AKA a a Bible scholar, but that sounds kind of stuffy to me. But, um, you know, I get to spend my days um, studying and researching um, the Bible and where it came from and what it's saying. And um, I have a fair amount of experience in talking about the Bible when the topic of the Bible comes up. But that's not the only thing that I've been invited here to share about. I've also been invited to contribute to uh, the series about prayer, which is not just important in the life of the church, though that's true, but it's like super important and a centralizing, vitalizing theme in our church community right now. Yes? Yes? So um, I uh, feel less confident when it comes to talking about prayer. And not because I don't think I can say something about it, um, but it's because uh, prayer inspires feelings in me that are really different than the feelings of when the topic of the Bible comes up. Um, So to be perfectly honest, um, prayer uh, makes me feel things like uh, intimidation because it's been a part of my journey of following Jesus that has felt like the most deficient and the most work with not quite sure that I'm doing it right or connecting to something that is what really what's like possible or potential. Um, Prayer is a topic um, that makes me feel a certain degree of guilt or shame because I feel like I ought to be having some kind of experience that I hear people talk about and it just for like decades of my journey of following Jesus hasn't been that kind of experience for me. And um, it also induces in me feelings of resignation um, because I don't know what to do and haven't known what to do for a long time. So I'm just being honest. Um, It's no worth putting up a charade. Um, That's how I feel when the topic of prayer comes up, or at least um, that's how I used to feel. 
Um, and I uh, am so humbled uh, to be able to say, for the first time in like a really, really long time in my journey of following Jesus, um, that's begun to change. Um, and it's changed uh, beginning, it's really hard to put dates to these things, but somewhere in the last year and a half in my life. And um, the reason why it feels really important for me to share that is because that change in my journey uh, coincides with something that the Spirit of God is up to in our church community, yeah? And as I am getting to know more and more people as a part of Bridgetown community, I have learned that that is changing for lots of us and in really pr profound ways. And so before I actually share anything about the Bible, um, I need to share more of that story because you're my church community um, and it's important for us to share stories about what God is doing in us um, so that we know that we're not alone and so that we can begin to get a bigger picture of what the Spirit of God is doing in our midst. So story time, then Bible time. How you guys doing? Okay. Um, to tell that story, um, uh, what I have to do uh, is tell a, a parable. Um, and, and the parable is real because it's something that happened to me about a month and a half ago. And that something is this. Um, I was uh, backpacking on the north flank of Mount Hood about six weeks ago. Um, you guess Mount Hood, it's the big volcano. Right? An hour and a half that way, right? It's not set to explode anytime soon, but you never know. Like, it, it does actually have a smoking sulfur pit up on, up on top. Um, so, um, Mount Hood is really special to me. I love to hike and to backpack and um, to run. And um, a, a number of years ago, I was hiking on the east side of Mount Hood, and I was looking at the glaciers, and um, I realized that the snow runoff from that mountain has been providing my drinking water for like the majority of my life. And all of a sudden I was like, I love this mountain. <laughs> and uh, its minerals are filling my body and have fueled, you know. So uh, I feel some special thing for Mount Hood and exploring all the different parts of it. Um, and so about six weeks ago I went to uh, go on a three-day solitude um, trip, uh, just me and Jesus backpacking and exploring uh, the northern side of Mount Hood. It's the most remote side. Um, there's forest roads that are really, really long and bumpy to get to the trailheads to hike many miles to get there. So it's actually also the least popular because you have to work really, really, really hard to even get there. And so um, I was excited to go on this trip and I was also excited to uh, take this journey because I love uh, backpacking for lots of reasons. I love the solitude, but I also love what I experience is what many people experience when they run is the runner's high. Anybody? When you push your body really, really hard, um, your body does something really awesome. Um, it creates all these natural chemicals inside your body and you feel really, really good. Um, and that's cool. Uh, what is also cool is, at least my experience of it, is that my thinking, my thinking gets really, really clear. Um, when I'm pushing my body. And so what I often do is um, save up for runs or, or hikes or backpacking trips, um, a little mental list of like, uh, like projects or puzzles or ideas that I'm working on related to my work. And my favorite thing is to like, you know, pick what, something I'm thinking about or reading, learning about, and just like file it up, you know, put it front and center in my mind, 
put my head down, hit the trail, and go. And I usually make a lot of progress on things that I'm thinking about when I do that. So that's my mode. I've been doing that for years. And so um, that was my mode, hitting the trail. And um, so I had about three miles uh, in the first stretch with lots of steep elevation uh, before a fork in the road. And, and where I was going, you'll see why this is ironic, um, or deeply meaningful, actually. Uh, I was headed to a place called Eden Park. Um, and I was going to explore some campsites there. And so I was cruising, having a great time, um, looking up occasionally, but heads down, making a lot of progress mentally on some puzzles in Exodus chapter 4 that I've been thinking about for a long time, just in case you wanted to know. <laughs> There's some weird stuff in Exodus 4, trust me. So <clears throat> um, I was cruising, having a great time, and then all of a sudden, um, to my left, I heard and then saw uh, rustling in the, in the bushes and startled me. And uh, because usually when something's rustling in the bushes, it's an animal. And usually if the animal that you are fine running into, it immediately like leaps out and runs away. Uh, and that was not what happened. Like this was a rustling in the bushes and nothing ran away, which usually means like it might be a bear or something like that, which is kind of cool, but also not cool at all <laughs> at the same time. So. Um, I, so I'm like, what is the thing in the bushes? And um, then I look and I realize, oh, it's not, it's not an animal, it's a human, it's a woman. There's a woman crouching in the bushes, like rustling around. And so the next thing that entered my mind, this all happened in like two seconds, the next thing that entered my mind was like, oh, she's going to the bathroom. <laughs> and I just like have, have stumbled upon her. Um, and this is, side note, this is one of the great benefits of going on like backpacking trips in the middle of nowhere, is you can relieve yourself anywhere you want. Um, and usually have great views while you do it. <laughs> and uh, you just gotta make sure you cover it up. So anyway, so I thought that's what's happening. I came across a woman going to the bathroom. Like this is not a great situation. So I'm just gonna keep like going off to the side. And then she stands up and she's not going to the bathroom. Um, her mouth is full. And she says with the full mouth holding her hands out, she just said, look, at all these huckleberries. They're just everywhere. And I look around me to like both sides on the trail and I see immediately what she's talking about. And I'm not sure, I, I've seen lots of huckleberries this, uh, in, the, in the fall uh, on, in the Cascade Mountains, but uh, the trails were just surrounded. I was immersed in the thickest, densest huckleberry bushes, more loaded with fat, purple berries than I'd ever, ever seen before. And I just, I have proof that I'll show you um, because um, it, it was like a you-pick blueberry farm. <laughs> like just so loaded and you're like, this has to have been cultivated, but of course it wasn't because it's really in the, in the middle of nowhere. Um, so I did the thing that you, I hope you would do, which is to pause and to like smell the berries, which all of a sudden I could once I noticed that they were there. And then I just stepped to the side and started eating lots of berries. And um, the berries followed me around for the next three days uh, of my backpacking trip. And there was just, it was a certain long stretch of elevation. I, I'm sure a million environmental factors go into why the berries were so dense that day, or, or at least that week or month. But I had berries as snacks. I had huckleberries in my trail mix. Um, I loaded my oatmeal every morning with them. I learned that um, huckleberries keep you very regular, which is great on, <laughs> uh, great on the trail, keep things flowing, you know? Um, 
and it was very, it was just like all of a sudden, there, this whole layer of my experience got enriched. And you could smell them, especially uh, in the heat of the day, the berries would smell. And it was like all of a sudden, this, uh, what was already going to be a great trip just had this layer of uh, additional richness to it. And it was a really special gift. So as I was cruising um, and, uh, for the next three days, uh, day two, I went on a long kind of ascent up this really cool area that I won't tell you the name of, otherwise hundreds of people might discover it. But, um, <clears throat> so I went up this area and I was praying and I um, felt my attention really being drawn back to that moment. And I felt like the Spirit was inviting me to see something really important there that I needed to reflect on. And as I did that, I realized that what the experience that I had condensed in just those, those couple minutes that just totally transformed the rest of my three days on the mountain was like a, a miniature parable of my own spiritual journey over the last year and a half. In, I, I didn't change locations when I encountered that woman on the trail. I was in the same, back, same exact spot that I was before I knew that she was there. But the moment she pointed out to me this thing that was surrounding me, my whole experience of that place became different. And my awareness uh, became deeper. And I, all of a sudden, I was having an experience that was engaging my whole body. I could, sm I could smell the berries. I was tasting the berries. I was noticing all kinds of different things uh, as I went further on from there. And I realized, like, that's, that's like exactly the gift that uh, I have been given over the last uh, year and a half in my journey, uh, w which is this. I hit the trail according to habit. And at this point in my life, um, my main habit and my main way of engaging Jesus is through my mind and through my conscious mind, and, um, which is a really great thing and a great gift. Um, and I've had um, an amazing privilege to be able to spend years and years developing all of these tools in language and historical research and culture um, to read and understand scripture. And it's, I love to spend my days in a room by myself, um, like I did today, um, reading, studying, writing, preparing to teach and to share what I'm learning. Um, but on the trail, what I, I realized was when I engaged in an environment like the northern flank of Mount Hood, the way I always do, and primarily there to facilitate the life of my mind, I was walking by something that was really there that I, I simply didn't have eyes to see. And the problem wasn't the berries, the problem was me. And it wasn't even that there was something wrong, it's that I had trained myself to only notice and access and interact with certain dimensions of my human experience. And all of a sudden, I, I, can you guys see where I'm going here? Um, I realized, like, that's, that's exactly my journey. Um, so you could put it this way, um, something began to happen a year and a half ago where I realized that um, I have a severely underdeveloped, like, soul. <laughs> My mind is pretty sharp, um, and I spend a lot of time focusing on that, engaging uh, with God through that way. But um, when it comes to other aspects of my whole human person as a way to engage Jesus, 
Um, I, I am like a baby. I'm like a baby, not even a toddler. Like a, like a year and a half is not even a toddler. Is a year and a half a toddler? <laughs> I have kids and I don't remember. <laughs> Maybe they begin to walk at 12, 15 months, something like that. So, okay. <clears throat> um, so that's my parable. And here's how it um, corresponds to, to my reality. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure if it was entering my middle 40s a few years ago or um, the COVID isolation, who knows. Um, but I began to have just a, a layer of sadness over my life and my journey of following Jesus because primarily the way that I engaged it was through my mind as ideas and texts and things, beautiful ideas, the most sublime ideas I can imagine, which is why I'm so taken with it. Um, but it was a set of ideas to me. And I began to become really dissatisfied and wondering, like, is, is it just a set of ideas? And if it's just a set of ideas, it even, is it even real in the first place? Um, and is there something more? And so um, I began to see a spiritual director at the recommendation of a friend, and that was, has turned out to be a great, great gift to me. And my spiritual director um, invited me to start doing something very simple, uh, which was to uh, begin each day with a, a period of silence and to uh, open my hands and ask God to speak to me and address me, my, my whole me, in some way that I could understand and latch on to. And so I, I began to do that. And um, would you like to know what happened as a result of that? Yes. Nothing happened as a result of that. <laughs> and like for a really long time, nothing happened. Um, but I was like, all right, what do I have to lose here? So I just kept doing it. Um, another thing that I uh, started doing was I have two little boys. And so I began to engage them in prayer in a new way, which you know, maybe I'm a delinquent parent, I'm not sure that I just thought of this because of this whole experience, but I, what I tried to do was at bedtime, like, pay attention, ask them to tell me, or at dinner time, we often ask them highs and lows, and whatever low points they experienced or talked about in their day, I would bring that up at bedtime and be like, let's pray about that. Let's pray about, you know, the fact that you were told that you're, you're like, you suck at kickball, or that somebody thinks, you know, that whatever, you're dumb, and that friend group, like, excluded you and doesn't want you to play with them or something. Let's pray about those things. And so I began to pray about these very, on one level, very simple, but very concrete relational places of pain with my boys. And um, over time, it was really remarkable. Um, some really cool things happened where those situations were resolved in their lives or where relationships that were really painful and difficult, like that they got healed in some surprising way and like now they're kickball buddies or something. And, and it, was, it was so simple, but on another level, you guys, I, it's so silly, I feel embarrassed to say this, but I was shocked. <laughs> like I was shocked that it felt like God was responding to these requests for these situations in my, in my boys' lives. I was like, is, is this really happening? Like, and I could rationalize it away. Like, I was kind of, well, the world's a strange place. Sometimes you desire things and pray about them and then they work out, but sometimes you do and they don't. So, but I, what I chose to do was I chose to trust that God was beginning to answer my silent prayer each morning, but God was doing it 
not through my mind, but through the medium of my relationships in my life. So that was one kind of cool leaf that turned. Um, another set of experiences that I had were connected to things in our community in the, in the last year and a half. And some of these I don't have categories for, so I'm just going to tell you what happened because I know it's happening to some of you too. Um, I've had moments, sometimes when we're gathering together on Sundays, but other times at like other random moments. And it'll be like a phrase, like a word or a phrase will just enter my mind. Um, and sometimes it's because I'm being open to the presence of God in that moment. And it's happened a couple times, like in a situation where I, I didn't have Jesus on my mind. <laughs> Sorry, Jesus. And, um, but a, a phrase enters my mind. And I'm like, what? really surprising. Like, what's that? Like, why, why would I think about that right now? And then as the day goes on, there'll be something else that happens where like that word or phrase comes up, but in some other way. Are you with me? And then, um, you know, some of them are, were like really personal, where it's like two days later, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I think that was for me, like to hear that. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? And, and on one level, I'm like, am I crazy? I think I'm crazy. <laughs> but then on another level, it's just, it's happened enough times where I wish it would happen more because it's, some of those experiences have become really, really precious and, and special to me and unfolded in really, in really cool things. And so I began to have those experiences and to be open to them and to trust that the Spirit really is getting my attention and opening my eyes to see that there's this whole way to be a human in relationship to Jesus that's additional to just my mind and thinking about things. Um, and one other thing happened that just kind of blew the lid for me. Um, and I've shared this with a few people, but I feel like, um, I'm a little nervous to share it, but I, f I feel like I need to. Um, over the summer, um, I went camping with uh, my family and extended family up um, on one of the San Juan Islands. You guys know the San Juan Islands up in the, up in the Upper Sound, Puget Sound? And um, so we, you have to get there by boat. And as we were driving up to, you know, go get, to catch the boat to go out there, um, I had a, kind of a cold in the back of my throat. And um, as we drove up there, it got really painful. Like I got a really bad sore throat. And so we get out onto the island and my throat turns from like irritating to excruciating. And over the course of the three days we're on the island, it's like my throat is swelling, closed more and more. And I woke up one morning and it, no joke, felt like I had a huge piece of steak jammed in the back of my throat, except it was my throat. Um, and so I just kind of had to endure through that and take lots of ibuprofen. Um, and when we got, uh, uh, back on the mainland again, I went right to urgent care. And the doc uh, looked at me and he was like, dude, you have a big thing growing in the back of your throat. Um, and you need to de deal with that, like, quickly. So I was like, okay. <laughs> um, so he gave me like a steroid to reduce the swelling and that was a godsend because it hurt so bad. And so um, we got back uh, into Portland and I scheduled an appointment. And basically I, I had to schedule like a minor surgical operation to deal, I'm trying to spare you the gross details, because um, they're gross, but um, I had needed to have a, a surgery to get rid of the thing that was expanding in my throat. So um, uh, we were gonna go to dinner at some friends the next night, and so we needed to call them, 
uh, and their friends who go to church here, and um, I, we need to say, like, hey, I don't know if I'm going to want to eat anything tomorrow. Sorry. Um, so we'll keep you updated because um, I'm going to have this minor surgery tomorrow. And so this friends, um, as they share it, went out on a limb because they felt like the Spirit told them to come to our house and pray that my throat would be healed. And so I was like, yes, please, you know? So we had this really cool moment where they came and... Um, uh, as a family, and we prayed together for my throat to be healed. And so, you guys, this is the most bizarre experience. So, um, I woke up in the morning, it was all very still, still that steak shoved in the back of my throat. And um, so, I needed to distract myself because I was going to have this procedure at 11 a.m. And so, I just went and played, built Lego all morning with my boys. It was a great distraction. <clears throat> and uh, so I kid you not, I get up to go put on my shoes and to get my keys, uh, to get in the car and to go to this procedure. And um, I'm walking by the bathroom, and it becomes very clear to me in a moment that something changed in the back of my throat. Um, and I knew this because I had to go to the bathroom and deal with that change. Um, and so, but it was like, what just happened? And so I go to the doctor, and they check me in, and um, I tell them about what happened, and then they do this scan on the back of my throat, and they're like, you're good to go. Like, you, we don't need to do this procedure. Your body dealt with it. And I was like, how often do people's bodies deal with that? <laughs> and and uh, the doctor was like, it can happen. It doesn't always happen, but it did happen to you. And so, like, what do you do with that? So, I, I mean, I was, I was just truly stunned. It was one of these moments where I'm almost embarrassed to say, like, I, I, it took me a moment to realize, like, I think God's healing power restored my throat. Are you guys with me? And, like, I, I, I actually can't really rationalize that away because it happened to me. <laughs> Are you with me? So... Um, this is what I'm talking about when I'm saying in the last year and a half of my life, I just have begun to have experiences where all of a sudden this whole layer of reality is opening up around me, and I have a hunch that it's always been there, like those huckleberries. But for one reason or another, through habits, formation, and whatever traditions I've been raised in, though I'm not going to blame that, I'm sure it has a lot to do about my choices, um, I have become blind to this rich, delicious experience that is all around me, and in fact, it has never not been around me, uh, but I haven't been aware that it is there. And that was the gift of my huckleberry experience on the mountain, um, was that I, I really, truly believe that that is what my journey has been over the last year and a half. And the reason why it's important for me to share this with you as my church family is I, I know that I am not alone in this experience, anybody. And, and so, and I'm not trying to sensationalize anything because I just condensed a whole bunch of things like into a sh short few minutes. Um, the majority of that year and a half has been a lot of quiet mornings just trying to quiet the chaos of my mind and wondering if God even exists at all. You know what I'm saying? Um, but then I have these other moments that are like, oh my, oh my gosh, like I, I had just had an experience. And I, it's not in my mind, it's like really in my life and in my relationships. And so um, that is my story to offer to you. What I also have to offer to you is a whole set of reflections on Scripture that I've actually 
been sorting out for quite a few years now. And these experiences have made me come back to these biblical reflections and, and see them like those huckleberries with a brand new set of eyes. And um, because, because they're not just ideas to me, they're actual experiences. And so I'm gonna shift right now into the arena where I feel much more comfortable. <laughs> and that's to talk about the Bible, but we're not done with experience yet. We'll loop it back. How you guys doing? Okay. Uh, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to show you, we're going to blitz through a whole bunch of biblical passages, um, and I'm going to show you stories that talk about gardens uh, and mountaintops and heaven and clouds and temples and rivers and the relationship between heaven and earth and prayer and the Spirit. <laughs> and um, what all of these themes and ideas in Scripture have in common is that I really think they're actually all about one thing. And they're the thing that I am beginning to learn how to become aware of and, and experience in, in my life. And that is the, the presence of, of huckleberries. Yeah. So uh, I invite you to ponder a story with me that's uh, very well known. It's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. Um, it's the moment where Jesus is being crucified. And uh, there's a, a criminal being crucified next to him, and that criminal has a real change of heart. He was making fun of Jesus, and now the criminal says, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? You guys know this moment in the story? It's very, very powerful. Jesus' response to him is very interesting. What Jesus says to this guy is, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, maybe uh, you're like me, and for a long time, um, if you read or reflected on this, in your mind you might have swapped out the word paradise with heaven. Today you'll be with me in heaven. And you're not entirely wrong in doing that, but that's not what Jesus says. What he says is, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now what's interesting um, about that is uh, that word, paradise. What on earth would it mean for Jesus to say that? So the word um, that Jesus uses, you'll learn a little Greek and Hebrew right now, um, it's the word, the Greek word paradesos. Luke's account is written in Greek. Um, and that word in Greek, actually, this is a whole rabbit hole that you really don't need to know. It's actually a Persian word, pardes, that means garden. Um, but it was adopted into Greek as a loan word. And, and our translations actually don't even really translate the word. They just spell it with English letters. You guys with me? Um, so uh, about 200 years uh, before Jesus, two, three hundred years, there was a brilliant crew of trilingual scholars who knew Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, and they wanted to make the Hebrew Bible accessible to all these Greek-speaking Jews around the world, and so they translated the Hebrew and Aramaic Bible into Greek in something called the Septuagint. And all throughout the Septuagint, any time um, the, uh, the word paradesos appears, it's translating the Hebrew word gan. And what all of these words mean is garden, garden. Now, if you are a Jewish man like Jesus, and you're a Bible nerd like Jesus was, Jesus was many, many things, but one of them was a Bible nerd, which I take a lot of heart from. <clears throat> um, there's only one garden on the brain when uh, he says, I'll meet you in the garden later today. You guys with me? And, and it's the garden that appears on page two of his Bible, uh, which is the garden of Eden. So what on, earth, what on earth does it mean for a dying man to say to another dying man, 
I'll meet you later today when you meet up with me in the Garden of Eden. Are you with me? So just let that sit for what, what does it mean to say a thing like that? And it's, what's interesting is because the presence of the garden and, and of the paradise is in their future at that very moment, yeah? Like later today, their immediate future. When, when we're dead, I'll meet you in the garden later today. What is that supposed to mean? Because the Garden of Eden is a thing that appears at the beginning of the biblical story. The Garden of Eden is introduced in Genesis chapter 2. So we're hopping from the Gospel of Luke all the way back to the first, uh, first book of the Bible in Genesis. On page 2, um, there's this really remarkable story where um, the pre-creation world is depicted as this desolate desert with no water. And so what God does is he provides a river that pops up out of the ground and it flows and it makes mud. And out of the mud, uh, two things happen. One, God plants a garden and there's just trees flowing everywhere and that stream turns into a, a river that waters the whole garden. Um, also, mud is created and out of that mud, God forms uh, Adam, the human, uh, and breathes the breath of life in, into the human. So um, there, there's a lot of debate about how to interpret these stories, early stories in Genesis chapters one and two. Yes, that's no secret to anybody, yeah? <clears throat> but what nobody debates is that these stories are set in the past, yeah? Like at the beginning. <laughs> the Garden of Eden is planted in the book of the Bible called the beginning. So it's in the past. So, and what you learn is then God plants the garden in Eden. So. This just furthers the puzzle even more because so when is the garden? Is it in the past or is it in the immediate future for Jesus and the criminal? Today, I will meet you in the garden of Eden. You guys, you guys with me? That's the puzzle, right? So these are the types of things that I work on when I go hiking and running. It's like, what's, like, look, what's that all about? Is it in the past or the future? Um, it actually gets even more complicated. So if you hop from the first uh, scroll of the Bible and you go to the very last book of the Christian Bible, uh, to the Revelation, and to the very last chapters and scenes of the Revelation, the plot thickens. So there, uh, John, the visionary, is having this dream vision and what he sees is a new sky and a new land because the first sky and the first land had passed away and there's no longer any sea. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So there's a city, a new Jerusalem. It's in heaven, but what's in heaven is coming to be one with earth, yeah? To be married to earth in the form of a bride adorned for her husband. That's how that particular vision opens. How that vision continues on in Gen uh, Genesis, in Revelation, chapter 22, is that John sees the river of the water of life. And you're like, oh, it's the Garden of Eden. Yeah, it's that river that came up that God planted the garden with. Clear as crystal coming out from the throne of God. And there's the tree of life there. And you're like, oh, it was a city. It was heaven, but now it's on earth and it's a garden. It's a garden city, yeah? So, so we're here we are on the last page of the Bible, and this is not in the past, and it's not in the immediate future, like for Jesus and the criminal, it's in like the future future, it's in the, the cosmic future. And so the plot thickens yet again. When is paradise, my friends? Is it in the past, is it in the future, or is it in the future future? Tracking with me? Okay, these are not all your options, right? So let's just fill out uh, the puzzle with one last possibility. And that possibility um, comes up and it's mentioned uh, by the Apostle Paul. 
um, in his uh, letter to Corinthians, chapter 12, um, Paul talks about a prayer time that he had one, 14 years ago uh, that turned into like a, a vision, like a dream vision that he had. And here's what he describes. Well, actually, it's funny. He talks about him having this experience like it's, it's about somebody else. Like, I had this friend, you know, who had this experience. But then he's about to say a few sentences down that it was himself. So he says, okay, so here's the thing. I know this guy in the Messiah who 14 years ago was caught up into the third tier of heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. But I know that this guy, whether in the body or out of the body, I'm not really sure. God does, no. I was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things that no one is permitted to tell. So a couple things are noteworthy. Notice how he describes the same exact place that he experienced with two different words. Do you see the two words? One's heaven, paradise. Apparently they're swappable. Yeah? They're two ways of talking about the same reality. And even though this was an experience that Paul had 14 years ago from when he's writing the letter, in the moment that he had it, um, paradise was a very present reality. Are you tracking with me? He had an experience of paradise now. So this really fills out all the options now. When is paradise? Is it in the past? Is it in the immediate future? Is it in the cosmic future future? Or is it available in the present? And I, I hope that you just have this deep instinct in you that the answer to this question is yes. <laughs> And you may not even fully know why you think the answer is yes, um, but I think that you're right, and I think that is the assumption that Jesus and Paul and the author of Genesis and John the visionary all had in the back of their minds, which is why they can talk about paradise as appearing in many times in many, in many places. And you guys, the plot thickens even more. So, in the Revelation, we are in the last chapter of the Revelation. Let's go now to the first chapter of the Revelation when John's visionary experiences begin. And he talks about how when his visionary experiences begin, he uh, heard something from the Lord God Almighty. And what he heard is God saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. It's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end. I am the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Okay. Is your vision of reality broken yet? <laughs> okay. Do you get his point, though? So I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What he means is the church is undergoing a local persecution and he's exiled on a prison island because of being very bold in his announcements of the story of Jesus in this community. And on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. And if you've ever tried to read the last book of the Bible, like you know what happens next. It gets crazy, right, from this moment on. Um, and and what, what happens is um, he all of a sudden, he, he's in the heavenly temple, and um, he uh, meets this human figure who's on fire. 
and is wearing this like flashing lightning bolt type of clothing. And uh, he realizes it's the, vi- the, the risen Jesus that he's encountering. And the risen Jesus says, hey, I need you to write um, letters to seven churches. And when he gets to the second church, the letter to the second church, this is in Revelation chapter 2, what he says to the people of Ephesus, he says a lot of things to the people of Ephesus, but one of the things he says is, if you guys overcome the obstacles in your way to remaining faithful to me, I will give you the authority to be with me and to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. How you guys doing? So where is, where is John? He's on an island, but he's also in the spirit, and he's in heaven at the same time. You tracking? Okay. And then what he hears is um, that a paradise is apparently available now too, not just for him, but also to the experience of a whole bunch of Jesus followers that he used to be with, but that he's not with quite at that moment, but that Jesus is talking to. They can all experience paradise no matter where they, they are. So this opens up a parallel question, and this is another you know, type of thing that I like to nerd out about when I'm getting the runners high on the trail. Um, and it's a parallel question, which is where is paradise? And we know at least one thing, that it's on a Greek island right, <laughs> called Patmos. Okay, so let me just pause real quick here. How are you guys doing? So let's, let's, just, let's just stop and say, when we hit these moments in Scripture where you're like, I, I don't have categories for what they're talking about. It's rubbing up against my ways of normally viewing and existing in the world. We really, really need to pay attention to those moments because what we're encountering is that Jesus and the apostles and the biblical authors have a fundamentally different view of reality than, than most of us do, and, and certainly um, the view of reality that's fashionable right now in, in our cultural climate. And it's really hard to put it into words, which is why the, the imagery of gardens and mountaintops and clouds and temples are all different ways in the biblical story to try and describe something. And that something is this. In the biblical author's imagination, the, the reality as you and I experience it in our like, conscious imaginations and, and daily experience, the, the reality that we encounter with our five senses and our awareness of the, the four dimensions that we inhabit, right? Height, width, depth, and then our experience of time, which is a dimension connected to space. Thank you, Albert Einstein, right? So it's like time is a part of our passage through through space. And in those four dimensions and with our five senses, the biblical authors just take it for granted that that actually is not all of reality that there is to be experienced. There is a whole layer and dimension of reality that's not just real, it's actually more real than what we experience in our normal conscious experience. It's actually so real that it is the source and ground of all reality that we do experience. In, in fact, there's a reality that's so real, without that layer of reality, we wouldn't be having the reality that we do have with our five senses and with our four dimensions. Are you guys with me? They just take this for granted, which is why they don't like write philosophy books on it, because they weren't trying to convince anybody of it, because they all just took it for granted, right? And so when we read the Bible and we're like, when is paradise? Is it in the past? Is it in the present? Is it in the future? Is it in the future, future? And the answer, of course, is, yeah, we're just not thinking on the same wavelength here. Um, if we actually saw the world the way that Jesus did, we would know that, that paradise isn't a time and it's not a place. Notice that in all of these moments, 
um, what Jesus says to the criminal is, today you will be with me. Notice that in Paul's experience, he was caught up and he begins hearing and seeing things and he encounters a person. When John is in the heavenly temple, he encounters a person. The, the view of reality that all of, of these earliest Christians and Jesus himself take for granted is that paradise isn't just a place or a time, it's a person. It's a person. At the center of, I can't even do it without using spatial language, the, the ground and the source of all reality that makes every part of our lived experience even real in the first place is a, a beautiful, beautiful mind and heart that, whose very essence is outpouring others-centered life giving eternal love. And without that consistent eternal outpouring of love, we wouldn't exist. That we constantly live surrounded by huckleberries. And in fact, there has never been a moment or a molecule that hasn't had huckleberries making its existence, its existence possible. Are you guys with me? They just take this for granted. And so that's why uh, paradise can be in the past, in the present, it can be in the future, or the future, future. Paradise can appear on the Greek island, and the plot still thickens yet. Are you guys with me? Okay, so let me tell you a story, another story. I told you I was going to blitz you with a lot of Bibles. So um, this is a story uh, from the book of Genesis. Again, we're really hopping around. <clears throat> um, this is about a guy named Jacob, and it happens right after um, this guy and his mom uh, schemed up this plan to deceive and uh, trick his dad and his brother out of this uh, like, uh, firstborn inheritance. And, he, and they succeed. And so um, his brother wants to murder him, and so he has to flee into exile. And so um, while he's, it's good reason to flee from your home, your brother wants to kill you. So he, he's on the run, and he, he's in between two places that are called Be'er Shava, uh, which is in modern-day Israel-Palestine, and Haran, which is like in far, like, eastern Syria, almost to Iraq, and modern Iraq. And the distance between those, a couple hundred miles, a few hundred miles, and a lot of desert, just a lot of empty, uninhabited desert, a lot of it still today. And so he's somewhere just at a certain place, and he's tired in a field. So he just lays down, puts his head on a rock, and um, sleeps. And uh, he has a dream, and that's actually really important for this scene and actually for this whole theme here. Um, he, he enters into another level of conscious awareness, and in that dream, he meets a person. He sees heaven and earth united as one through like this bridge. And the one that he sees at the bridge between heaven and earth is like a human-like figure that, he, that is called Yahweh, the God of, God of Israel. And um, notice, it's a lot like John's encounter of the one that he met in, in the heavenly temple. And so what Yahweh says to this guy is, I am with you as you go into exile on your way to Haran. So just notice that this is like the inverse of what Jesus said to the criminal. What Jesus said to the criminal is, you'll be with me and it'll be paradise later today. Now what's happening is Yahweh appearing to this guy in the middle of a desert saying, I am with you. And all of a sudden that desert exile experience in Jacob's life becomes a heaven on earth moment. You guys with me? And he wakes up from that dream and he's so, he's terrified. And what he says is this place is a house of God, Bethel, and he says this is the gate of heaven. It's a portal between heaven and earth. And so he, he pours out this 
sacrifice on a rock and dedicates it to become a sacred space uh, in, in the future. And what's remarkable about the story is notice that Jacob doesn't go to a sacred space to encounter God's presence in the midst of his exile. It's, do you see? It's actually the opposite. He encounters paradise in the middle of a desert. And then all of a sudden, his awareness that this is a paradise spot, that's what makes him aware that this is a holy space and that there are huckleberries everywhere. And I just didn't, I just didn't know it. You tracking with me? So now we have a couple options. Now paradise can be in the middle of a field somewhere in between um, Haran and Be'er Shiva. And just to make it complete, and I'll try and make this one really short, turn to the scroll of Ezekiel with me. I actually did my dissertation on the book of Ezekiel, and it was amazing. And I could bore you for hours about things in Ezekiel, but this thing's not boring. This is in Ezekiel chapter 8. In Ezekiel chapter 8, um, Ezekiel's sitting with some friends in a house. He's exiled in Babylon in a refugee camp. And he's sitting in his house, and look at how he talks about this experience. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, I was sitting in my house, you know, like you often do, along with some elders of Judah sitting before me. And then all of a sudden, the hand of Lord Yahweh came upon me there. Now, whatever he means by that experience, I'm pretty sure it was a severe alteration in his conscious awareness <laughs> of what's happening. Because look at what he says. I looked, and there's a guy, and the guy's on fire. And he grabs me, and all of a sudden, when he grabs me, it's the spirit. Wait, is it the human guy or the spirit who grabs him? Exactly. Yes. Answer is yes. The spirit lifted me up in between land and sky, in between heaven and earth, and in visions of God, and took me to Jerusalem. Now, just really stop and think about that one. If you are in between heaven and earth, where are you? <laughs> now, he already told us where he is, yes? Where is he? He's sitting in a house in a refugee camp in Babylon. That's where he is, but he is also in the spirit, and now he's traversing the universe, and he's going to go take a virtual tour of Jerusalem, and he's going to be there, but nobody can see that he's there, and he's cruising around, and then he wakes up, and he's back in his house again. So when and where is paradise? You got, is, it, is it in a house? Is it in a field? Is it uh, in, on a Greek island? And um, you already know where I'm going with this question, right? So the answer is exactly. The answer is exactly right. So the question, these are two ways of asking the same thing, and we're hitting up against the same exact view of reality that Jesus, the prophets, the biblical authors just take for granted. And I, what I really want to draw attention to is the fact that in these stories that I just showed you, it, it, the, the key is about the, their state of consciousness. John talks about how he was in the spirit. Jacob enters into a dream state. Ezekiel is there and something happens to him in the spirit that changes his level of, of awareness. Now, I'm not a psychologist, um, but I know enough to know um, that we, what we call our conscious awareness when we're like awake and we're cruising around um, is actually quite a really fragile and, and malleable thing, isn't it? So our, and, and dream, the fact that these happen during dream moments is highly, highly significant. So uh, listen to any like popular psychology you know, podcast or something like that, and what you'll learn is that what we experience as conscious awareness is very much a, a malleable, almost plastic-like construct. We experience it as reality, but it's a lot weirder than, than you think. From our earliest moments at, at young, innocent, vulnerable age, you know, 
we're just oblivious, you know? And if you haven't had the chance to spend time around little kids, it becomes very clear, real quick, like, they're just oblivious, and it's so beautiful and wonderful. And, but from our earliest conscious memories, we go into life, oblivious and vulnerable, and we start experiencing pain, and we start experiencing disappointment and grief, and what we begin to do is develop coping mechanisms, right, and self-preservation techniques for how we're going to survive and cope with this very difficult and disappointing world. And those techniques turn into habits, and they actually begin to shape, right, the very malleable, like, neuronal pathways of our, our brains. I'm not making this up. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? And so what we experience as reality is filtered through years and years and years of these shields and filters that we build up. And you usually know this when trauma enters into your life and you find yourself reacting in a way that you don't know why. And it's because you're reacting according to the vision of reality that you've been constructing since you've been a little, a little kid. And the reason why we get surprised in those moments is because it feels irrational. You're like, that's not reality. And your brain is like, yes, it is. It's the reality that you've made for yourself and, and that has been made for you through your life experiences. But when, when we go to sleep, something happens. It's like our, our guard is down. You, you don't stop being conscious, right, when you're asleep, but you enter into a much more deep, primal, core level of your human being. Are you guys with me? And your body is fully aware of like what's happening and is sorting all of it out in weird dreams and so on. But what's fascinating, in our cultural setting, we usually take our dreams to be like weird fantasies and I don't know what I ate before going to bed that night. And what we take to be the most real thing is like what we're aware of during the day. The biblical authors have the exact opposite assumption. What they assume is like this, what we're all aware of right now, is like a very sub, sub, distorted, manipulated, created version of reality that we're all making for ourselves. And that the most true experiences of reality happen when our guard is down. And when we are allowed to encounter the reality of who we are and who, what the world is in moments of vulnerability, and in moments of, of surrender. And that's why sleep is always a crucial moment in, in biblical stories where people encounter God in ways that they simply don't when they're, when they're awake. How are you guys doing? I'm not trying to, I'm not making this up, right? This is like in the Bible. This is how the biblical authors see the world. And it actually corresponds to like the reality of our, of our experience. And so when all of these pieces begin to form together uh, for me, like when I was on the trail, and over the last year and a half, it's just kind of like all the pieces locked into place for me. And it became clear to me that for the, you know, 25 years that I've been following Jesus, I've been cultivating my active level of conscious awareness as my primary way of engaging with Jesus and of hearing what he has to say through the scriptures. And that's a great tool, and that's a great way to engage and in, in hear from Jesus, but it is not the only way, like not even by a long shot. And there is a level of conscious awareness in reality that's like soul level. And it's a, it's a full-on language in a way of interacting with the eternal now and with the presence of the huckleberries that is all around us. They've, it's never not been all around us, but just we 
find it very difficult to cultivate the habits of mind and heart that make us aware of the eternal now in our day-to-day lives. And so it became clear to me that I just simply have a severely underdeveloped soul and that that is a huge part of these years of feeling like, where is God in in my life? And the the problem was not God. The, The problem was me. And it's not that I did something wrong, it's that I found myself into years and years of habit formation in my mind and heart that slowly blinded me to something that was never, ever absent. It was always present. It was actually making every part of my existence possible in the first place. And what it took was a set of experiences to make me aware of this thing that... (laughs) What this vision of reality is claiming is that at the heart of all being and existence is not a certain time or a moment or a place, it's a person. And it's a person whose essence and heart is love. Outpouring, others-centered love. And that if I will open myself and surrender all the shields that I build up for self preservation and just open myself through practices that are very ancient and that go right back to the, 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 the prayer habits of Jesus, um, that I can open myself to paradise now in, in ways um, that will really break your vision of reality. At least that's where I'm at. How you guys doing? Can I show you one more story? Okay. Um, This is a story that may also be familiar to you. Um, It's from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. Um, It's where Jesus takes three of his closest followers, um, Peter, James, and John, and they go up onto a mountain, and your radar should be like going crazy, right? They go up onto a mountain uh, to, to do what? To pray, to pray. And while he's praying, Jesus starts looking like that guy that Ezekiel met and that Jacob met, and that John will meet on the island of Patmos. He turns into a fireball, right? And all it gets even more bizarre because there's two other glorious figures there, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, and they're talking with Jesus about the exodus that he's about to fulfill in, in Jerusalem. And then it gets even more bizarre because remember, where are they? They're on a mountain, but then a cloud comes and surrounds them. So where are they now? Well, they're in heaven now. And what they hear is a voice when they enter the cloud. And what that voice reveals is the true identity of the eternal now. The true identity of Jesus. This is my son. And in the gospel stories, you know, down when they're off the mountain and in, you know, in Galilee or Judea, everybody has opinions about Jesus. Who is this guy? Is he the son of Joseph? Is he John the Baptist raised from the dead? Like, who, who is he? Who is he? And it's in this moment... Notice the the collection of themes. On a mountain, in heaven, hearing and seeing the eternal now. Seeing paradise as a person. And all of a sudden they can see who Jesus really is. He is the one who makes all of reality possible. And then in a moment, it's over. (laughs) And they go down from the mountain. So what, what I'm not trying to say is that life following Jesus is just filled with these kinds of experiences every single moment and every single day. Clearly not. Remember even Paul said, like, yeah, that was 14 years ago, 
when he had that experience up to paradise in the third heaven. And we're not living in the Garden of Eden. Like, I don't think you need me to tell you that, right? So, um, like, I'm dying, and so are you. I hope you know that. And um, things aren't okay here. However, however, even in life outside of Eden, God just has this habit and this pattern of planting moments of paradise in the deepest moments of our exile and pain. And it creates the moment for an opportunity for us, whether it's like a crazy sore throat on an island and wondering if I'm going to like choke to death at night, um, whether it's the crisis that you find yourself in right now in your family, whether it's the, the diagnosis you know, that you got from a doctor in this last week. I don't know what it is, but we're all encountering moments of deep pain and grief and loss, and we have a choice. We have a choice to make about what vision of reality will I choose is most true, and will I choose to inhabit. And if part of following Jesus means becoming like him, which means adopting his way of seeing the world, then what I want most for for myself and what I want for you as my church family is to go on a journey uh, and forming the habits of mind and heart that will allow me to, to see the huckleberries. Are you with me? And to see this thing that is all around us just waiting to be experienced and encountered. And it will likely not happen in ways and times that I will prefer or that are convenient, but that doesn't make it not real. It actually makes it more real. And, and because the one that we're encountering, it's not predictable and it's not a formula, which is why I don't like it very much because it's like it's not a dictionary, right? <laughs> it's not like a text and I can't like interpret it and like know what it means. Uh, that's not how relationships work but that apparently is how this relationship works. And so um, my invitation to you uh, is the same invitation that has been uh, the spirits to me, um, which is I, I just have a deep, deep hunch that there is more to be tasted and that there is more to be experienced and that there are things that the eternal now, that, that the person of paradise um, wants to do in our midst if we're willing to surrender and to open our our eyes and our minds and our hearts.